Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to our continuing exploration of the Wirecard Saga with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon of Affiliated Monitors. This episode entitled Bring Lawyers, Guns, and Money focuses on the other enablers which allowed allowed Wirecard to operate beyond EY. I know you will find it fascinating. Thank you again for joining us on this special podcast series. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon for our continuing adventures of Wirecard. Today, it couldn't be more appropriate, bring lawyers, guns, and money. Mikhail, first of all, welcome back. Always a pleasure, Tom. So, uh, Mikhail, last week we had the president release, have his tax returns released, the worst debate performance in the history of American politics, and he um, contracts COVID. Uh, It was a little more... Uh, dramatic in wire cards. So why don't you bring us up to date on last week's wire card story? I know. This one you think, you know, the low moments, you think, you know, how can wire card beat those? Ah, where to start? Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Okay. Wire card, AG's auditor, EY, let's just plunge in. Wasn't it just the other week, Tom, that EY Chairman Carmen DeSolbio had expressed EY's regret at having missed the decade plus of fraud at Wirecard? Well, still leaving a pat on the back to the firm for having finally gotten there? I can't help but wonder if Mr. DeSolbio isn't now regretting that regret statement. Why? Well, listeners, Once again, the Financial Times broke a story about Wirecard, and once again, it isn't pretty. It transpires that EY did know about the corporate fraud and even a possible incident of attempted bribery by Wirecard as far back as 2016. This is really shaping up to be EY's Arthur Anderson moment. Apparently, one of EY's own employees on the Wirecard audit team blew the whistle on Wirecard in 2016. They blew that whistle via a letter directly to EY's German headquarters in Stuttgart. Mein Gott! How did all of this suddenly come to light? There was a not-so-wee little addendum, 61 pages, attached to that KPMG forensic report that was not released when they published those forensic audit findings a few months back. Recall, they were only auditing a specific time frame and a set of transactions. Apparently, they viewed the additional findings as technically being out of scope, but so significant they couldn't just not write about them. So they, they put them in this addendum and then sort of went, well, let's see who reads it. Uh, it wasn't widely released. Are there any mitigating circumstances that would in any way exonerate EY for their total mismanagement of the whistleblower's disclosures? Um, no, not really. So here's what we know thus far. 
the whistleblower called attention to four key concerns. The first, those highly questionable transactions Wirecard engaged in when it overpaid for three payment processors in India. Remember those companies? And we spoke about them very briefly a few episodes back. Hermes Tickets, that was former COO Jan Marsalek and his Mauritius-based Emerging Market Investment Fund 1A. And listeners, listen, if you are all new to this series, go back and listen to episodes 1, 5, and 7, where we cover at a high level Marsalek, Mauritius, the EMIF, and the relationship this latter entity has or had to money laundering Russia and the round-tripping deals involving India and Wirecard. In fact, now that I think about it, let's use next week's episode to focus on more of what went on with Wirecard in India. Tom, put that down. Let's do that next week. Okay. So back to what this whistleblower identified as problematic. The first, those Indian acquisitions. And interestingly, the whistleblower called attention to what some of those short sellers had noted. The seeming relationship between what they called Wirecard Germany Senior Management and EMIF, that Mauritius-based fund. If you were paying close attention last week, you'll recall it is specifically Jan Marsalek who held an ownership stake in EMIF. The whistleblower's take? Conflict of interest. <laughs> yep. That would be right. How can EMIF be selling an Indian payment processor to Wirecard when one of the senior leaders of Wirecard happens to also have an interest in EMIF? The whistleblower also called attention to those same Wirecard execs seemingly inflating just how profitable those Indian companies Wirecard was acquiring really were. According to the whistleblower, fully one-third of the value of each of those companies was derived from future performance-related earnouts. In other words, their future profits. Now, nothing in the books of the respective companies, Great Indian Technology or Git, Star Global, and Hermes, hitherto had suggested that they were going to be particularly profitable at all. We'll dig in again to that in depth next week. The fourth claim by the whistleblower was that a wire card manager who held a senior role within the newly acquired Hermes, attempted to bribe an EY India employee, allegedly promising Dosh if said auditor would sign off on some dodgy sales figures. It's unclear, but it does not appear at this time that EY's India employee accepted the bribe. So how was this whistleblower report treated by EY back in headquarters in Stuttgart? Well, okay. In fairness to them, they did kind of, sort of launch an investigation. However, they didn't get too far. Just far enough to identify some problematic, quote, observations. And that's big four speak for lots of guano for those of you outside of that circle. Why didn't they get too far along? Because our favorite malfeasant, Jan Marsalek, then wearing his COO hat, told EY, now shut the investigation down. And of course, EY, the auditor, just shrugged and said, huh, okay, well, you're the client. KPMG <laughs> diplomatically wrote in its addendum, quote, the examination of the observations by EY audit was incomplete. 
EY didn't get far, but they got far enough to identify balance sheet irregularities in Wirecard India's books. And they found evidence of fraud involving their Hermes acquisition. EY even found confirmation of the whistleblower's allegations via another party. So they now had cooperation of what the, the whistleblower had told them. The investigation by EY had been codenamed Project Ring, an allusion to knowing they would be chasing their tails. I don't know. And prior to Marsalek putting the kibosh on it, EY had sought to both interview Wirecard's head of accounting, Stefan von Erfa, you remember him, folks, and gain access to von Erfa's emails. Wirecard demurred, and again, EY just shrugged. And Tom, I can't help but hear the equivalent of SNL's Pete Davidson's standard line here. Uh, okay. As von Erfa has been cooling his heels in a Munich detention facility for some num- months now, perhaps he has had ample time to reflect on what could or should have been. What little Project Ring had identified that was troublesome, EY subsequently shared with the core Wirecard audit team. However, when the 2017 audit opinion was issued for Wirecard, EY claimed Project Ring had been successfully concluded and had not identified any indications of, quote, flawed accounting or, quote, violations of the law. Guess who signed off on that audit report? EY's Andreas Lotscher, who is now head of accounting at Deutsche Bank. If only Braun's dream of an acquisition of Deutsche Bank had come to fruition. Think of the size of the financial cesspool it could have been. The EY partner who signed the audit opinions for Wirecard 2016, 2017, 2018, Herr Dahmen, he's still a partner at that firm. Now, KPMG, in this same addendum, observed, a little unsurprisingly, that EY's audit of Wirecard's accounts in 2017 were superficial at best, and that Project Rain really should have been conducted by a neutral third party, given that EY was central to the whistleblower's complaint. Remember, one of the allegations was that an EY employee had been bribed. Uh, yeah, so... What risk partner at EY signed off on Project Ring? Got to be a fly on the wall there right now. And it gets worse, folks. Much worse. In what can be generously described as tone deaf topped with a dollop of Western cultural supremacy, or racism as it's more commonly known, EY Germany replaced its Indian audit team but didn't bother to investigate the bribery allegations attributing the so-called, quote, tensions between Wirecard India and the former EY India audit team that had refused to sign off on those fabricated sales figures, the German EYers attributed this to, quote, cultural peculiarities in India. EY India, if you're listening, you're your own firm, just one of many under Swiss Bahrain. Break free. You deserve so much better. KPMG's conclusion, the investigation was left unfinished. But EY claims that everything from Project Ring to the 2017 audit was handled just diggy-boo. Hold that thought, listeners, because today's larger theme 
is all about what I call the enablers or lawyers, guns, and money. Sorry, Warren Zevon. Okay, but before we head there, let's finish reviewing what else has gone on this week with Wirecard. I know, the EY story is pretty filling. It saves some room for a few little Wirecard truffles of news. In the wake of this disclosure about EY having received a fairly strong heads-up warning four years ago, re-Wirecard, if we're not counting the short sellers and foreign regulator warnings over the past decade, investors are looking at legal options against EY. One top five investor in Wirecard went on record this week saying this new bombshell made it significantly more likely that they would sue EY. Germany's third largest asset manager, ESG Capital Markets and Stewardship, has said they are currently, quote, evaluating claims against EY. Rather unfortunately for EY, there are no caps on potential payouts to third parties. In Germany, the limits of financial liability for auditors in that country only extend to clients. As I said, the Arthur Anderson moment. Now, as the EY story was breaking, independent of this, the Monetary Authority of Singapore had already come to the conclusion that with Wirecard AG's insolvency, Wirecard SG Singapore was unlikely to be on the soundest of financial footings. So they issued direction on September 30th that as of that date, Wirecard Singapore was to cease all payment services and return all customer funds by October 14th. Now, customers will not lose out as Moss had the foresight to ring-fence the funds when Wirecard AG collapsed. The funds were moved to Singapore banks, and Wirecard Singapore could just no longer issue or process credit card payments, pre-part cards, e-payments, so forth. They're done. That office is closed. And staying in Singapore, remember R. Shanmugardaratanam? He was the unfortunate director of Citadel the accounting firm that falsified escrow account balances they claimed to hold on Wirecard's behalf. Remember, he was arrested last month and charged with six counts of misrepresenting his company's balances? Ah, poor man. This past week, he was charged with another five counts, this time willful intent to defraud for the false letters his accounting firm provided for Wirecard, Wirecard UK and Ireland, and Card Systems Middle East. Each of these 11 charges, they carry a maximum 10-year jail term. Oh, it's going to be a hot time in Singapore. This past week, German prosecutors, apparently at a loss of what to do with themselves now that they've ceased bringing cases against investigative reporters and short sellers, turned their sights on another financial institution. Nexus to Wirecard? It appears... IPEX Bank, a subsidiary of the German state bank, KFW, extended to Wirecard a 100 million euro line of credit back in 2018 and then extended it again in 2019. So far, nothing untoward about that, right? Except KFW IPEX forgot to require any collateral from Wirecard to protect against those losses. Ah, maybe it's not too late for them to get themselves added to that lengthy list of creditors Herr Hoffa has going. They might get a, I don't know, a few funnings on the Deutsche Mark recovered. 
And speaking of post-game analysis, Germany's Bundestag this week officially approved the formation of a committee of inquiry into Wirecard. It will be composed of nine members not yet named. The first constituent meeting kicks off this Thursday, October 8th. Some German officials have already quietly raised the prospect of barring EY from public mandates in that country. This, folks, promises to be loads of fun, at least for those of us watching in the gallery, what will no doubt be a very public, rather embarrassing, and likely excruciating process for the German government. So get ready for the Bundestag Committee of Inquiry. Oh, Tom, we're going to have fun the next couple of weeks. And speaking of financial fallout, the commissioner designated for EU financial stability, financial services, and the capital markets union, Marit McGuinness, she's promised to fellow members of the European Parliament that there would be at the EU level a full investigation into Wirecard, including just exactly how and why Germany's regulators made such a verbfuschen of their supervisory duties. Interestingly, in the same speech, she promised tougher actions against money launderers and did not rule out infringement proceedings against member states that are failing to meet their obligations under the Fifth Anti-Money Laundering Directive. Hock dong, Germany. This coming Wednesday, both the EU Council and Commission will each be issuing statements regarding the role of the European Supervisory Authority in the Wirecard matter. Likely to come out of the subsequent hearings will be recommendations to the Commission on regulating digital finance, including supervisory measures over crypto assets, enhanced cyber resilience, crowdfunding, and fintech companies. There's also been discussion in the European Parliament of the need to move to a single financial market supervisor, EU-wide. As a former executive board member of the European Central Bank, and the current chairman of Societe Generale, Bini Schmagi, was quoted as saying in a European parliamentary briefing on Wirecard, in his estimation, the Wirecard case indicates an excessive proximity between supervised financial entities and their respective supervisors. But that's persisting. And the only way around that is to get to an EU-wide supervisory authority. Now, that same briefing, it included an excerpt from Wirecard's annual 2010 filing. Yeah, this is Wirecard's words, folks. It drew attention to the statement in that briefing because in it, Wirecard had written that the German Investor Protection Association, SDK, had filed a legal motion before Munich's regional court to challenge a Wirecard resolution adopted in its 2008 general meeting. And what did that resolution have to do? Concerned a discharge of the Board of Management and Supervisory Board. SDK also petitioned for a court order to have the individual annual financial statements of Wirecard for fiscal 2007 be declared null and void. This is Wirecard reporting these developments in their 2010 filing. Now, they went on to say that the arguments in favor of SDK's proposed actions were, quote, quote, predominantly based on alleged deficiencies in the financial statement of the company. 
So in the fall of 2008, Wirecard Supervisory Board retained EY Germany to prepare a, quote, comprehensive expert opinion on the key issues and predicated on that. Predicated on that EY report, they said, no, there's no need. This is Wirecard saying, no need for any corrections in light of EY's audit findings. However, Wirecard in that same statement noted that the SDK action against Wirecard was still being heard by the court. It had not been dismissed. And this brings us to the enablers. Every week we climb into our time machine and we go back in order to better understand how a massive fraud money laundering at scale could possibly have gone as long as it did, despite so many different third parties highlighting problems with Wirecard's reported figures. Many commentators have called Wirecard Germany Enron. But I don't want to, I, I do actually want to point out a key difference here. Enron didn't have a decade of short sellers pointing out falsehoods. Enron didn't have investigative reporters five years before its fall asking pointed questions about conflicting numbers and non-existent customers. Enron didn't have an investor protection association taking it to court over irregularities in its financial statements. Enron didn't have foreign regulators contacting FinCEN or DOJ or the SEC warning that it was involved in money laundering for Russia and organized crime. Wirecard had all of this. And then some. Now, there's no question EY has, in the words of Desi Arnaz, some explaining to do. However, less attention has been focused on all the other audit firms and professional services firms involved in signing off on individual wirecard entities or partners or deals around the world. One short seller going under the nom de plume MCA Mathematica back in 2019 identified Baker Tilly as playing a not-so-flattering part in the Wirecard downfall, going so far as to write to both Wirecard supervisory board and regulators about their concerns over BT's involvement. MCA drew attention to BT, having conducted the due diligence on both Wirecard's acquisitions in India. Remember, those very same troubling deals we've just touched on? And on the due diligence of Wirecard's deal in China. That Chinese deal, it resulted in one of the largest fines ever meted out to a third-party payment company in that country. 16 separate offenses, including fake merchants and inflated profits. The BT partner that performed the due diligence work he was a partner at Wirecard's former German auditor, R.P. Richter, and was the one who signed off on Wirecard AG's 2009 and 2010 audits. He went on to work on several Wirecard acquisitions, including MOIP and the Wirecard purchase of City Prepaid. Oh, <laughs> and I almost forgot to mention, as recently as 2019, BT GmbH in Hamburg, they were auditors to Wirecard Sales International Holding GmbH, whose managing directors included Jan Marsalek and Thorsten Holton. So no conflict there. Other auditing firms with ties to Wirecard prior to its downfall, 
BDO. They were briefly auditor of OCOP Management PTE Limited in Singapore, formerly known as Senjo. And this is a company heavily implicated in the Wirecard Asia fraud and whose managing director, Carlos Huser, was a senior Wirecard exec in the Wirecard Singapore office for over a decade. You'll hear more about them next week because they go directly to the India, uh, the dodgy deals in India. The OCAP had two auditors resign in 2019. So who replaced them January 2019? BDO did. Now, to their credit, they resigned in October 2019. Then the UK Financial Conduct Authority hired BDO to help monitor Wirecard UK transactions as it unraveled the UK side of the Wirecard mess. And BDO is now the reorg administrator in the Wirecard Australia. But one wonders if the FCA knew that BDO was already familiar with some of the third parties tied to Wirecard. Others who've touched the Wirecard debacle include RSM. They prepared Wirecard's Thailand book. Wirecard Thailand was part of Wirecard Asia, you know, where all the fraud was. Crow auditor to Wirecard Malaysia, also a member of Wirecard Asia. Grant Thornton, auditor to Wirecard New Zealand. Deloitte, that's right, another big four, folks. They signed off on Wirecard Turkey. You know, the entity that wasn't even licensed and was implicated in the merchant cash advance fraud. And then, of course, EY wasn't just auditor of Wirecard AG in Germany. It was auditor to Wirecard Asia, the subsidiary, and the entity they forgot to audit for three years. And these firms were not the only professional service organizations that work for Wirecard. Numerous white shoe and magic circle law firms represented Wirecard in some of their sketchy deals and in several instances, retaining and directing investigative firms such as Control Risk to exert pressure on reporters and short sellers. Herbert Smith Freehill took Wirecard to word without ever questioning or looking at the larger allegations Wirecard was accused of and went after the Financial Times on behalf of their client. Now, look, folks, it's one thing to defend your client, but HSF, they claim certain Wirecard documents were fabricated when they were genuine and helped give confidence to the market that Wirecard's assertions about its accounts were honest. Listeners, as you know, we've been recounting for weeks all that went on in the Philippines in the direction of Yal Marsalek and his buddy Christopher Bauer. Recall Pay Easy Solutions, apparent Wirecard payment processing partners that turned out to be empty warehouses and farmsteads, fake bank, fake bank statements, and even fake bank employees, bribed immigration officials, and so on and so forth. Marsalek and Wirecard-related entities, Pay Easy Solutions, Forlick Tours, Cone Pay Solutions, and Wirecard eMoney Philippines, were all represented by attorney Mark Christopher Tolentino. Tolentino's prior job? He was the Philippine Transportation Assistant Secretary. For a time, Tolentino claimed he was a victim of identity theft when this wire card uh, fraud uh, came crashing down. Then he claimed he'd been framed. Unfortunately for Marky Mark, he conducted transactions for these entities under several of his own companies, MKG Tolento Trading and MKG Tolentino Enterprises, which has given the Philippine authorities cause to open an investigation into him. So Wirecard retained a former government official to serve as their deal counsel, and that counsel seemingly helped in concealing the fraudulent nature of Wirecard and its Philippine partners' transactions. 
There are others, many other firms, who touched elements of Wirecard's books and records or represented them in highly questionable transactions or even represented Wirecard execs in some of their extracurricular Wirecard activities. Some are local or regional firms. Some are major names in the professional services world. One can't help but wonder how so many missed so much. Or did they? Some appear not to have missed what was going on so much as they look the other way. They may not all have been truly in a position to question transactions, but their respective involvement raises more questions than it answers. It certainly begs the question as to what sort of client vetting or due diligence any of these entities engaged in. Not only when they first accepted Wirecard or one of its subsidiaries as a client, but what sort of ongoing due diligence monitoring were they performing? I don't know what the better or worse answer is here. That they aren't performing any, flying clueless and potentially putting their respective firms at risk, or that they were aware of the allegations that swirled around Wirecard for a decade from reputable sources, and they just chose to ignore them because, hey, a paying client trumps legality. It's interesting. A 2013 FATF report identified how the legal profession was vulnerable to misuse and facilitating money laundering and terrorist financing. In that report, FATF drew conclusions that the involvement of the legal profession in money laundering lay along a continuum from innocent involvement to complicity. Legal professionals were found to have a greater involvement in the establishment of legal persons, legal arrangements, bank accounts, directorships, nominee services, when it compared with accountants. And the same FATA study came to the conclusion that, quote, despite their reasonably high level of involvement in the establishment of legal persons and arrangements, legal professionals are not sufficiently aware of their inherent money laundering and terrorism financing vulnerabilities. And this is sort of supported because a few years later, the IBA, the International Bar Association, they surveyed the profession with respect to assessing their knowledge and understanding of combating corruption and money laundering. And it would appear to confirm this lack of awareness of the risks for the industry. The IBA survey found that nearly 80%, 80%, 0 folks, of respondents when dealing with external legal counsel as an intermediary for an entity or third party, relied on recommendations from a colleague as their form of due diligence. 32% still just researched the prospective lawyer via Googling. Seriously, they Googled. Most, and I won't say all, law school graduates those with accounting certifications, or even those who join professional services firms from other paths, do not enter their careers wanting to facilitate crime. But here it is. It's time to pick a side, folks. Lawyers as a profession, our ethical code is intended to be of the highest order. Accountants and others also agree to adhere to high professional standards. So if you are in one of these professions, ask yourself, do you hold the rule of law and democracy as sacrosanct? Or do you support kleptocrats, transnational organized criminal groups, launderers, and traffickers? Client due diligence can go a long way 
toward avoiding taking on dubious clients to begin with. Recall, this is not about turning criminal defense work away or failing to represent those accused of crimes. It is agreeing not to facilitate or engage in financial crimes. Yes, there will be times when we're confronted with balancing our obligation to client confidentiality and being obligated to report financial crimes or to terminate that client relationship. Client risk assessments and due diligence procedures need to evolve from those days when it was enough to know the client's executive went to school with you or came recommended by the GC at another company you represent. Lawyers and accountants can be complicit in or even initiate economic crimes. They may even become complicit through negligence. The extent to which this occurs on a global scale was revealed by the respective Panama and Paradise Papers. And as we've discussed in many of our episodes, Wirecard is no bog-standard corporate fraud. Professional service firms would do well to ask themselves what they could have done better if they were a part of Wirecard's 15 years of chicanery. But so, too, a hard look is needed by all firms. We've spoken in other episodes of the catastrophic failures by auditors to catch other corporate failures and frauds, the roll-on effect these have had on investors, pension funds, and the greater society. For years, reforms of the audit profession have been discussed, debated, and even incrementally advanced. An inconsistent patchwork of gatekeeper regulations exists for lawyers in some jurisdictions. But beyond needed regulatory reforms, a lot comes down to the culture in these firms. The model in professional services firms is to reward the rainmakers, those that bring in or retain clients. But at what cost retention, at what cost bringing in the wrong clients all for the sake of the fast buck? Unless we change that model, it will continue to allow financial crime to flourish. I know of firms that have no compunction of turning away an adult entertainment client for fear of reputational damage, but who don't hesitate to ask reputational questions about other entities inextricably entwined in forced labor, sanctions busting, or worse. For some reason, transnational organized crime appears too nebulous for many professional firms to really wrap their risk-averse minds around. EY's troubles from Wirecard have really only just begun. Other firms may also find themselves answering to regulators and to investors via the many actions currently being drawn up. The other enablers of Wirecard those firms who served as their mouthpiece parroting the false information Wirecard fed them, never questioning, or those who represented Wirecard, its subsidiaries and its senior executives and what are now being identified as transactions for the purposes of money laundering? Was it really worth it? Wirecard, big client, euros and dollars galore. Was it worth turning that blind eye to retain a dirty client? How much of Wirecard's filth has splattered onto their enablers is still being evaluated. But it is not unreasonable to hazard that it is going to get much worse for these firms for some time to come. So next week, we'll take a deep dive into those dodgy Wirecard acquisitions in India, which include, in their orbit, Singapore and Mauritius. Listeners, we have a lot of really fun and compelling episodes coming up on so many criminal aspects of Wirecard. But... 
I'm going to throw this out there. We'd love to hear from you. Interested in learning more about a particular angle of Wirecard or want us to cover some element in greater depth? Let us know. In the meantime, join us next week as we continue to unravel the fraud that is and was Wirecard. As I said in the introduction, Mikhail, Ryder, Gordon, and myself are going to be taking a deep dive on the Wirecard case over the next several weeks. I hope you will join us again. This special podcast series will focus on the events uh, on the ground and each week, and then we're going to take a deep dive. Some of the topics we're going to cover include Germany, Inc., the regulatory response, what this means for the overall fintech and EU regulatory world, and a variety of other interesting angles to the Wirecard case. I hope you will stick with us throughout this series. I know you will find it incredibly enjoyable as this is one of the largest frauds uh, since the Enron Worldcon days and the largest accounting fraud in Germany since World War II. It's going to be a ton of fun. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that on iTunes. The series on Wirecard is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.